Well, we are back in Ephesians 6 today, and we are continuing our series called The Invisible Battle. So I want to invite you to turn back to the passage that Eli read, and we're going to camp out there this morning. Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at uh, the belt of truth today, but I want to back up a few verses too. And not just to review, but as I study this passage, uh, the Lord's just shown me Showing me some fresh things from it, and I think are going to be helpful to you. So I want to start out with a little bit of a story. In World War II, there was an American officer, and his name was Norman Dyke. And he was a leader in the American Allied Forces. And he was transferred from division headquarters where he was stationed. He was actually a paper pusher. He preferred an office to the front lines of combat, but he wanted to climb up the ranks of leadership. That was his aspiration. He came from wealth. He came from power. He came from money. His dad was actually a a New York um, senator, and so he had a lot of power and a lot of influence, and he was going to rise straight up to the top. But the one thing that he lacked was combat experience. He had to engage the enemy. He had to experience the battlefield. He had to fire his weapon. And so they transferred him to a place in Germany uh, where there was a really unique and critical battle about to take place. Battle of the Bulge. Some of you war historians know how critical that battle was. And he came and he took over uh, a company named Easy Company. And there were about 150 soldiers uh, in that regiment. And he came out of nowhere. They never met him. They never knew him. And within just a matter of days, he was their new commander. Their previous commander had been promoted and the one who followed him had been shot in combat. And so here was this brand new guy named Norman Dyke, and he was promoted to first lieutenant, and he was in charge of these men. And they looked to him for leadership. And they were stationed in sub-zero temperatures in an isolated patch of woods next to a town called Foy. And the battle was to take that town. It was occupied by Roman soldiers who were picking off the Allied forces, and that was a key area that was, that was occupied by the enemy. And so Easy Company, under the leadership of first lieutenant Norman Dyke, they were going to take that town and drive out the Germans and occupy it. That was his station. But even though his orders were simple, his men, all those 150 men, the days leading up to that attack, they noticed something that was very unnerving, unsettling, and disturbing about First Lieutenant um, Norman Dyke. They watched him and they understood that he was absolutely clueless as a soldier. This guy did not have a clue. He was totally out to lunch. Not only was he clueless as a soldier, he was incompetent as a leader. He did not understand the dynamics of leadership. He didn't understand what it took to take men who are here and lead them here and to be a good example to his men and to garner their trust. He, he wasn't able to do those things. So not only was he clueless as a soldier, he was incompetent as a leader. This was the biggest thing. He was absolutely a coward in battle. When the battle started, First Lieutenant Sergeant Dyke, uh, First Lieutenant Norma Dyke was gone. He was MIA, nowhere to be found. But when they did discover where he was, um, they came up with a nickname for him. They called him Foxhole Norman, because that's where Norman would be when the battle started. He would be in the safety and the comfort of his foxhole, waiting it out. He was supposed to be on the front lines, charging the enemy with his men, but, but not Foxhole Norman. No, he was... He was somewhere in his foxhole hiding, waiting it out. And so that really unsettled the men, and they, were, they had serious reservations going into this battle 
under the leadership of this man. But what do you do? It's the military. There's rank and file. There's a hierarchy. There's a system. And even though they registered their complaints uh, to their commanding officer, nothing could be done. It's really tragic. So the day came when he had to lead those men down to that town of Foy. And as you can imagine, he was absolutely out to lunch. He was clueless. And when the battle actually started, he panicked. He fell to pieces. His men who would write their own autobiographies later in their memoirs said he absolutely fell apart. He didn't know what he was doing. He led these men into an open field. He was separated from his backup. He was a sitting duck. There were these German uh, mortars that were being fired on them and blowing up and shrapnel metal. There was a hidden sniper or two that were just picking off his men left and right. And of course, there was machine gun. Um, there was bullets spraying everywhere and mowing down these men, and he just he was paralyzed. He found a haystack, and he went and hid behind it and tried to gather his thoughts. And all the men were screaming at him, men that were his inferior. They were saying, you are going to get all of us killed. You've got to do something. But he would not make a decision. In fact, the second lieutenant, his name was Lipton, he would later say, first lieutenant Norman Dyke was not a bad leader because he made bad decisions. He was a bad leader because he made no decisions. And as you know, those of you who understand war and military combat and the Army and the Navy and the Air Force and the Marines, you understand that making no decision is a deadly thing to do. It's living in the middle of the road. It's sitting on the fence while the enemy knows exactly what their strategy is and they're going to have you for lunch. Well, um, his commanding officer, uh, Richard Winters, right in the middle of this battle, called on somebody to go and relieve him of duty. It's basically the most humiliating thing that can happen. It's like, dude, you're fired, man. You're getting men killed, and now it's time to step. They should have done that before, but they waited. And so under the command of, of first, now First Lieutenant Lipton, they were able to go and, and, and take this town successfully. But a lot of men died, and a lot of men got hurt because of him. One of, his, one of the officers serving under him said this. He wrote this in his memoir. Where's Dyke? I probably heard that question a thousand times, and I probably asked it a few times myself. There were long stretches where we didn't know where Lieutenant Dyke was. He'd disappear for hours. It wouldn't, have had, it wouldn't have been so bad if he was just one of the guys, but he was supposed to be leading this company. Dyke wasn't bad because he made bad decisions. He was bad because he made no decisions. And men later would write about his extended periods, periods of absence he was no, I mean, he was supposed to be the leader of this company. And for extended periods, he was totally gone missing. He didn't understand the men. Um, he was inattentive to them. And he preferred fighting in a foxhole. So foxhole Norman. Maybe you know some Christians like that. They're just totally clueless. They're out to lunch. It's not that they don't have on a uniform and that they don't have, you know, a title in front of their name and that they don't carry a weapon. They're there but they're not really there. Do you know what I mean? I've known some Christians like that. Heck, I've been one of those Christians before where you're not really engaged in the battle. You're not living the Christian life. You're oblivious that there's a war going on here, man. And you're in the middle of it. You've got a target on your forehead. The enemy is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and you're his target. You're the person that he wants to devour, but you're clueless. You're out the lunch. You're here, but you're not really here. You're not really engaged. I would say it this way. The truth of this whole thing is not really something you've committed to and put on. You've not really owned it. That's really what I want to talk about this morning. All of that that I've just described is like a military, met military metaphor that Paul uses to describe this battle. We're cognizant, we're aware that we're in this battle, and we're committed to it. 
Because we're soldiers in the Lord's army. If you're a soldier, if you're in a battle, you're under command. You have orders to follow. And those orders are important. They're vital. And you know the truth about who you are. You know the truth about who your commander is. And you know the truth about the enemy. That the war has been won already. The victory is yours. But there's still a battle to be fought. There's things to do. As, as is always, there's balance is, is important in the Christian life. And so today we're going to look at this passage. And again, I'm going to back up just a few verses, but this is the outline today, okay? These are the three points we want to cover. Number one, we are in a spiritual battle. We are in a spiritual battle. Point number two, we will encounter evil days. We will encounter the evil days that this passage talks about. And third, we must be prepared. So that's the outline, and I, I have to give you a disclaimer. I've got to be honest to you. Uh, with you as your pastor. I told you this was going to be a two-week series, didn't I? And then we'd be on our way. Well, I lied. <laughs> it's, it's not going to be a two-week series. And here's why. There's so much rich material here. Um, there's, there's so much equipping truth. And it's an opportunity for me as your pastor. I've never really talked about spiritual warfare before. And the deeper I get into this, the more I'm helped and I'm encouraged. And when that happens to me as a pastor, I take it that, you know what? God wants to help and encourage and equip you too. And so these are just 10 verses, but they're so deep and they're so rich and there's so much application for us. In fact, all of this armor, I want to be honest with you, all of this armor, all the pieces that we're going to look at in this series... I believe all of them are benefits, freedoms, um, privileges that have been purchased for us already by what Christ has done. So this is not a scary thing for us to look at this armor. It's a glorious thing. It's a great reminder that we, that we can fix in our minds and hearts and know there, there is truth to be put on. There is uh, an enemy that we are engaged in and we're supposed to resist him, but the truth is that he's already been defeated, amen? He's been put to an open shame, Colossians says. And so, even though this is just 10 verses, we could mine this forever. In fact, one of the 17th century Puritans, his name was William Gurnall, and he wrote a book called The Christian in Complete Armor. And it was only on these 10 verses, just 10 verses. You know how many pages that thing was? 1,200 pages, double-columned. And it's not fluff, I've read a lot of it. It's not fluff. It's all good stuff. But we're not, we're not going to go that deep, okay? We're not going to stay that long. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book uh, from Ephesians 6. It's 364 pages just from these uh, 10 verses. So we're not gonna, I'm not going to give you 364 pages of sermon notes either, okay? But we're going to look at this because I believe that this is going to help you. So that's my disclaimer for the day. We're going we're gonna to stay at this. We're going to celebrate Easter next week. I'm going to preach on the resurrection. And then we're going to have a... a um, a church planter, he's got, no, excuse me, the week after Easter, Pastor Jeff is going to come and he's going to preach for us. He's been looking forward to doing that and I know you're looking forward to get an update and hear from him and how Beachside has been doing. And then we're going to finish this series and then we'll be, we'll be back in the, in the Gospel of Mark after that. So, point number one, we are in a spiritual battle. And if you just back up a little bit there, just before the part that Eli read, I want to back up and, and grab what we talked about just for a little bit last week. Verse 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 11. The schemes of the devil. That word in Greek is methodius, the methods. He has methods, he has devices, he has schemes and strategy, and we're not supposed to be ignorant of them. We're supposed to be ready to stand against them because we're in a spiritual battle here. But look at verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, I just barely tap that last week, okay? I want to go a little bit deeper. Paul is saying that there is a spiritual 
battle that we're engaged in. There's invisible enemies. We know they're there. We can't see them, but we see the effects of what they're doing. We feel the temptation. We sense the opposition, the resistance. We feel the accusations. The devil, his, his name is Diabolos in Greek. He's, he's the accuser. He's very sinister, very evil, very dark. He accuses us. He tempts us. He tries to do what we talked about last week. Uh, you know, the devil is a musician, but he needs an, an instrument. He seeks to entice us. If you open up the lid of a piano, like I said, and you sing the B note, the V note vibrates in the piano. Satan knows our weaknesses, and he entices us there. That's his strategy, to attack us there. But listen, one of the greatest devices of Satan is this. He is a deceiver. He's a liar. There's no truth in him, Jesus said. And he loves, he loves, loves to deceive us and to uh, entice us in this way to misdirect us. And when Paul says here, we don't wrestle. And that word wrestle means this is close hand-to-hand combat. This is not you are a sniper up in a tower and you've got it easy. Or you're in a foxhole like Norman. This is hand-to-hand combat. There's a struggle. This is like wrestling, okay? Um, And what Satan wants you to believe is that your struggle, you are wrestling against other human beings. Satan would love it if you think that other human beings are your enemy. That's what he wants you to think. That's what he wants you to believe. And many times he's successful in doing that. Not just individually, but even politically. Uh, Just last Sunday, I believe, there was another shooting of an unarmed young black man in Sacramento, California. Did you guys read about this? 22 years old. Um, I'm not going to go into all the details. And look, I know the Bible says, he who answers a matter before he hears it, he's a fool. They're investigating this. They're looking at video footage. And I'm praying for justice to be served and and for the system to do what it's supposed to do. But I know what's going to come out of this. I know how the enemy uses things like this. He makes it against this, there's this group of people versus this group of people. That's what it's about. It's about uh, blue versus black or white versus black or about the cops versus the civilians. That's what the enemy does. And he wants us to follow suit, and I'm not doing it. That's how you resist the enemy. Yes, justice needs to be served. Yes, a thorough investigation needs to take place. Um, those things are all important. But how the enemy would use this is to make you think it's us against them. That's what he wants you to think. Not us against him. Right? There's a big difference there. And it's not just, that's just one illustration. It could be the left versus the right. Even in the church, it's the Baptist versus the Methodist or the, the Pentecostals versus the conservative, whatever it is. It's, Satan loves that. He loves to trip us up in that. And, and sometimes there is, um, if you were to ask Paul, Paul said, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. I'm reading this and I'm thinking, bro, seriously? <laughs> Paul, you've been stoned. You've been attacked, you've been imprisoned, you've been left for dead. <laughs> um, definitely, bro, you're struggling against flesh and blood. Which, so there's, there's truth to that on the surface, right? That Satan entices and uses instruments, doesn't he? But they are not the enemy. They're just caught up in this war just like we are. We know the real struggle, if God were to open our eyes, it's against what Paul says here, principalities and powers, And authorities in the heavenly places, they are against us. The minute you enlisted in Christ's army, you had armor that was given to you to put on, and there is something to do. Some assembly is required, right? You're supposed to pick up that armor, know what it does, put it on, and believe in it, because it's from God. Something outside of you, done for you, on behalf of you, to put on and enjoy the benefits of. We don't put on pajamas, we put on armor, right? Yes, Satan wants to misdirect us and think that, you know what, this is, this is just a battle between other human beings, but it's not. 
There's an invisible war, and it's spiritual. And even though sometimes the manifestations, you know, Jesus talked about love your enemies. There are enemies, right? There are those who oppose us and resist us, but we know behind them is a more sinister, subtle enemy um, that's, that's plying his trade and doing what the devil does, deceiving us. So that's the first point. We are in a spiritual battle. And I, I found this quote by Richard Loveless. He wrote a great book called The Dynamics of Spiritual uh, Revival or Dynamics of Spiritual Renewal, something to that effect. And he said this. He said, most of the devil's advantage, most of the devil's advantage depends on his ability to move among human affairs undetected. Undetected. If a thorough knowledge of his devices were widely taught among the churches, the Christian warfare for the extension of Christ's kingdom would be immeasurably strengthened. He means we would be stronger Christians if we taught on this more and taught the truth about it. And then he says this, In the present situation, we are often operating like an army without intelligence, beating the air and one another at times, fighting flesh and blood instead of the principalities and powers which lie behind them. I mean, Satan loves this. Satan loves war. When you read about him in Revelation, it says, Now war broke out in heaven. And who started it? Satan did, the serpent, the dragon. It says, Michael, the archangel, and his angels fought against the devil and his angels. That's, pretty, that's like an epic battle that went on in heaven. It's pretty interesting, right? And Satan lost. He was tossed to the ground, and he knows that his time is short. And so now he has to pick his target. And what is it? It's us. I don't say that to scare you. Look, if we come to the end of this series and you're afraid, I have failed as my job as a pastor. If you're afraid, I have failed. Because I want to equip you. You should be courageous, strong, confident. You should have assurance. That's the helmet of salvation we're going to talk about. But if we finish this series and you're totally oblivious and indifferent, I've also failed as my, in my job as a pastor. Right? So man, pressure's on me during this series to stay balanced. And Satan hates balance. He hates it. He wants you to go off one end or the other. He would either have you disbelieve in him altogether or be completely, like we talked about last week, obsessed, have some kind of satanic panic that Satan's behind every bush and when your lawn dies, that's the devil, and your pet dies, that's the devil. Instead of really seeing, no, there's something more sinister going on here. The battle for truth. The battle for my soul. That's what's going on. So this is a spiritual battle. And I want you to remember something, guys, and this is important too. Satan... The position that Satan has is under our feet. <laughs> and that's good. Now, I could do a backflip on that. The Bible said, if the Bible didn't say that, you almost wouldn't believe it, would you? Listen to what Jesus said. You know, I told you last week, if you have trouble believing in a personal devil, oh, come on, pastor, shake the hayseed out of your hair. You really believe that? Well, Jesus believed it. He said, Luke 18, I, excuse me, Luke 19, <clears throat> Luke 10, 18. He said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. He told that to his disciples. And then the very next thing he said this. He said this. Behold. That's, you know, when, you word, when you read that word behold in the Bible, it's like, hey, get a load of this. Check this out. He says, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Man, all the power of of the enemy. You say, you're getting a little charismatic. Well, look, if that sounds charismatic, I'm going to let it be charismatic, okay? Because that's what the Bible teaches, that Christians have been given authority over all the power of the enemy. And Jesus says, and nothing shall hurt you. And then you think, man, I'm some, 
this is pretty cool. I got this power. But then he says this, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. <laughs> he says, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, your identity is not, look what I, look what I can do. That's not your identity. Your identity is, look what he did. And because he already did it, I share in his victory. You guys know that's what it means to be in union, in union with Christ. Or to be, you are united to Jesus Christ. That means everything that he has done, you reap the benefits of it. And because he has already put Satan to an open shame, disarmed him, and nailed all your trespasses to the cross, Colossians says, you share in that victory. That was a victory done for you on behalf of you. And you have that power. That's amazing to know the power that God has given us. And I know, again, Satan, this is spiritual war, spiritual battle. What Satan wants you to do is stay off balance. He loves you to be off balance. He would want you to think that, uh, number one, Christianity is all about just peace and puppies and skittles and unicorns and happy, and now I'm happy all the day. Um, but look, Christianity is about battle. It's about a war, right? And you were supposed to be told that when you got that talk, when you encountered the gospel, when you heard, this is what it means to be a Christian. You, there are crosses to take up, right? There's armor to put on. This is life or death. This is serious stuff. Satan would want you to think that um, there's nothing left to do. He would want you to think several things, first of all. He would want you to think that it's all about peace. And while we have peace with God, that's the most important peace. It's the peace that surpasses all understanding that flows out of that. Nevertheless, there's not peace with the enemy. There's still a war, right? There's a battle, so Satan wants you to know that, man, you're going to be persecuted. He tells, Paul tells Timothy, and yes, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will, what? Suffer persecution. That's the good word of the day. We can just go home now, right? No, that's a truth that you need to be aware of. I'm going to show you this belt of truth. This belt of truth is, is the, the right perspective that we have from Scripture and from Christ. That's what it is. The belt of truth is you acknowledge that and you agree with it. Yes, I know being a Christian means I have an enemy. And he's a sinister enemy. He's evil. He's powerful. He's seductive. Um, he entices us. He deceives us. He wants to kill us. That's part of the truth that you put on with this belt. So Satan wants you to stay unbalanced, to think that, that it's all about peace. And he also wants you to think that, well, um, once you believe that you're in a war, then, man, you've got to do everything. It all depends on you. See, that there's that extreme, that your salvation depends on you, and man, it's all upon your shoulders, and you could just lose this whole Christianity thing, that's pushing you to one extreme, and then the other thing, and by the way, a lot of people live under that pressure, and I meet them all the time, all the time, they think the whole weight of their salvation is on their shoulders, and I'm like, man, listen, Christianity is the religion that says it's finished, <laughs> done, not do, done, but at the same time, here's this other balance, it's called quietism. Maybe you've heard that. Let go and let God, man. There is nothing for you to do, buddy. Get in the foxhole, you know. Binge on Netflix. Let's go. It's all been done for you. You don't have to do anything. Just sit back and enjoy the victory. Well, there's an element of truth in that, like there is in everything, right? I mean, rat poison is 99% rat food, right? <laughs> it's the rat, it's the 1% rat poison that gets you. No, there, there is something for you to do. In fact, this, this might be a good opportunity for me to talk, talk to you about this. There is what theologians call, scholars and, and, and biblical theologians, they call the already, not yet aspect of Christianity. Have you guys ever heard that? The already, not yet aspect. There, and there's tension. We live in the middle. We need to be balanced here, okay? 
Let me give you an illustration from the Bible. Um, 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 says, Be vigilant, be watchful, be sober, because your enemy, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Okay? That's in the Bible. That's a little bit scary, isn't it? Um, so Satan is, is loose. He's active. He, he's looking. He's pouncing like the book of Job. When God said, where'd you come from? When Satan presented himself, he said, walking to and fro throughout the whole earth. <laughs> Same thing. Doing what? Looking for somebody to devour. Have you considered Job? Yeah, I can't get at him. I mean, that, that's what Satan does. That's what the Bible says. Um, so the already not yet is Satan is loose and he's active. Um, that, there's a not yet element to Satan being totally defeated, right? But there's already the, uh, the sense in which he has been. I mentioned it earlier. Colossians says Satan has been put to an open shame. He's been defeated. He's been disarmed. Right? So which is it? <laughs> which is it? Is Satan a roaring lion that's been unleashed on us? Or is he defeated and under our feet? And the answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. That's Christianity. If you don't like the tension, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, people that, that, that fall into heresy fall off one side or the other. And Christ wants us to stay laser focused down the middle. Paul is writing to the Romans in the final chapter... He says this, he says, Satan will soon be crushed underneath your feet. That's an amazing promise, isn't it? It was written after Jesus had already died and been resurrected. So there's a not yet aspect is what I'm saying, okay? Satan's been defeated, yes, but Satan's still alive. And he's seeking out people to devour, right? Already, not yet. And we have to stay in the middle of that. We have to stay balanced. So... The first point is that we are in a spiritual battle, but Satan's underneath our feet. He's a defeated foe, but he's still very actively against us, accusing us, tempting us. So here's the second point, okay? We will encounter evil days. You guys are saying, when are you going to get to the belt of truth? I'm going to get there. Remember, we're, we're, we're taking our time here. I want you to understand this. This will help you and equip you if you understand this. When Paul says, back up in verse... Uh, 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. What in the world is he talking about here? In fact, somebody in my home group last Wednesday, this is one of the reasons I'm extending this series. We had so, such a great discussion in our home group, and I hope you're a part of one where you can have this discussion over the sermon and, and the scripture where we study the Bible and pray together and strategize. But somebody said, hey, what exactly is this evil day he's talking about? That's a great question, and there's an answer. The evil day is not the second coming of Christ, okay? It's not the end of the world. Uh, why? Because that's not an evil day for us. That's a good day. <laughs> That's, that's the day it's all going to be going down, right? That's the day when Satan is going to be underneath the feet, crushed. All right? That's a good day, not an evil day. Okay, well, it must be the day that we die. No, that's not an evil day either. The Bible says, for to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. That's not an evil day either. Well, it must mean something else. So what's this evil day that he's talking about? I, honestly, I don't have to tell you what this evil day is because I think Christians, most Christians, walking in the light have at least a couple of these every month. Amen? Do you guys know? I mean, how many people could raise their hand right now and testify? I can tell you exactly what the evil day is. And look, 
We don't always know whether or not it's Satan. This is, this is not a command or a charge for you to try and sift out like you do. And you ever tried one of those recipes? You have to get the egg white separate from... I can never do that. But that's not what we're called to do. Is this Satan? Where does Satan's efforts begin and end? And where does my own sinful heart come into play there? No. Um, he's just saying evil days will happen. And a lot of the times, the sinister efforts and accusations of the enemy is behind that. Remember... We're not fighting against flesh and blood, okay? We're not fighting against flesh and blood. But the evil day is this, uh, and I actually have a slide here to help you know what it is. Evil days, those are when things are at their worst because of the devil's schemes. When things are at their worst because of the devil's schemes. And, and i got to be honest with you guys. When I read the Bible and I see a passage like this, it just reminds me, man, the Bible has us pegged, doesn't it? For the people who say, you know, the Bible's so outdated, it's not really relevant, doesn't really speak to me, doesn't hit me where I live. i got to scratch my head and say, man, are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, this is, this is my life. Not just as a Christian, but especially as a church planner, as a pastor. I have evil days. All, since I started this series, every day has been an evil day for me, guys. i just got to be honest with you. It's been one thing after the other, and I don't know if it's Satan or if it's me, or I don't know what it is. But I know this, when the, Bible, when the Bible says, so that you may be able to withstand, the word stand is used four different times in this passage, and there's two different meanings. This meaning's pretty cool. You know what it means? We think, yeah, just get by. by. I'm just going to really barely get by by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin and, and, and just barely escape the clutches of Satan. No, no. That's not what this word means. Withstand actually means in Greek, you have gained something. You've achieved a victory. This is not that you're just barely, you only, you only surrendered a couple of inches of territory to Satan. No, this is you've plundered him because Christ has plundered him. He's the stronger man, right? That goes and binds the strong man and plunders his goods. This is not you just barely get by by the hair of your chinny chin chin or you get by through the skin of your teeth. This is, man, you've gained something here. An evil day is not something that you should be fearful of. That's the belt of truth we're going to talk about. It's something that you, you are not like uh, Foxhole Norman. You get it. This is a battle. Evil days are coming and you're prepared. You are prepared for them. You know this is a normal part of living the Christian life, right? You understand that. That's what an evil day is. Listen, maybe, maybe your evil day is your marriage is on the rocks. And maybe serving you papers has been brought up, or the D word has been used as a threat. Or maybe it's your spouse is just about to, to walk out on you. Maybe you're just tired. Maybe your kids are drifting. Or maybe it's the bank statement came in, or the phone call came. Or maybe it's the besetting sin that you keep having over and over, and then you were caught. I mean, what is it? You, you read the text messages that your kids have been sending. It all came to the light. The evil day had hit you. Whatever it is, Paul says... We're not unprepared for that, and we're not surprised by that. We have our armor. We have armor for this very day that's coming. And I have learned this, and this will go into the last point in a little bit, but, you know, the time to, to, to gather your armor up and understand it and put it on is not when the evil day happens, guys. I have learned as a Christian and as a pastor, I'm not going to say it's too late, it's hopeless, but man, it's hard to explain to somebody and help somebody put that armor on when the evil day has already happened. Haven't you seen a movie or read a book and, and, and man, you're, just, you're on the edge of your seat because this person is, the enemy is on top of them and they're about to, to deal the death blow and inches, just inches from the fingertips of the person on the ground is a knife or a gun or a sword or a weapon and they're grasping for it. They just, and you're like, oh, dude, just get it, man, just get it. 
See, the armor and the sword and the shield and the helmet, you're supposed to already have those on. And that belt of truth is what holds them all together. That's a commitment. And it's not, I don't want you to think of it as it's effort. It's, it's a subjective, it's like a mental preparation for the battle. You're putting on this truth of the Christian worldview. You know the, re, you know the way the world is supposed to be, right? Christians are supposed to have the right worldview that answers three questions. Um, how's the world supposed to be? What happened? How can it be fixed? Every worldview answers those three questions. Christianity, I think, has the right answer. The belt of truth is I know the way the world is supposed to be, and it's not like this. I know what happened. I know what broke it. I know what invited sin and death into the world. And I know the enemy that we can't see that's real and alive and active. Um, And I know what's going to fix all this. That's part of the belt of truth. It's the lens. It's the right perspective on your life. And listen, it goes even beyond the battle. You see things clearly. This belt of truth is, is, is God's truth over everything. You view politics actually the right way. You view money the right way. You view sex the right way. You understand what marriage is supposed to be, what parenting looks like. You get it. You know. God's taught you. That's the belt of truth that we're supposed to put on. And we will encounter these evil days. And if we don't have that belt of truth on, man, it's, you're going to be easy pickings. I'm not saying you're going to lose your salvation, because you can't when you have true salvation. Or that you're going to die, but I'm saying you're, you're going to live a defeated life. And listen, I'll be honest. I know a lot of Christians, they live their life like that. They're always disillusioned, discouraged, confused, and feel defeated. And it's every day. Every day is an evil day for them because they've never put this belt of truth on. They don't have this armor on. They're, they're Norman, foxhole Norman. They're in the foxhole. They're oblivious. They're out to lunch. I've known a lot of Christians like that. And this, this passage really helps me. Here's an example from the Bible of what an evil day might, might look like. Check this out. This is what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Did you know Paul said that? The apostle, mighty apostle Paul, said that. We despaired of life. This evil day came upon us, and it so caught us off guard. We were despairing of even being alive. Did you know that? Indeed, he says, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's in the Bible. An apostle said that. The apostle to the Gentiles. The apostle who wrote the majority of the New Testament and was the greatest missionary outside of Jesus who ever lived, probably. He wrote that. And you say, well, what happened? I thought you'd never ask. This is what he says next. Because remember, the word withstand, it doesn't just mean you survived. You, you got by, by the hair of your chinny chin chin, right? No, listen to this. This is what's so beautiful about this this war. And so beautiful, I'm not glorying in war. War is a terrible thing. But this is what's so glorious about what Paul talks about is that God's in charge of all this, right? And the very thing that Satan wants to to try and do to to knock you off, right? It's the very means that God is going to use to strengthen you. Because listen to what Paul says next. Right after he said, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But, but, there's always a but. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. And that's when you have to say, nice going, Satan. You strengthened Paul. Way to go. 
Don't you love that? That's the truth that's in the Bible, that the very thing that Satan seeks to do to destroy you and devour you, God is at work. Remember, all things work together. Even the assaults of Satan work together for good to those that love God. Sarah and I have some friends who live out of state, and they got married about the same time we did, and we've stayed in touch. Both of them are believers. They're both sweet people, both committed Christians. But not long after they were married, the wife discovered um, a really terrible struggle that her husband had with pornography and just completely caught her off guard. That was their evil day. When The day that she discovered that, it just totally devastated her. It broke her heart, and she thought, this is it. This is over. I can't live, I can't live with this. Um, she uncovered the truth and she felt hurt. She felt betrayed. That's what an evil day is, by the way. Have you ever felt abandoned by God? That's an evil day. Have you ever felt hurt, betrayed, abused? That's an evil day. Well, she felt all of those things. And she felt like this is what a, was an assault of Satan, too, on her marriage and on her home. She felt taken advantage of, and she was ready to, to throw in the towel. But just talking with her, talking with her husband, staying in touch with them, now it's been years um, since that happened. And listen, it wasn't an overnight fix at all. It, it took a long time for him to get the help that he needed. And, but what was it? It was, I believe, I would use that as an illustration to say this was the belt of truth that she put on and that he put on. She, she remembered, I made a covenant to this man. I love him. And this is, this is a sin that he's struggling with and he needs my help. And I'm here, I want to be here for him. I want to help him. I want to call him to repentance. I want to help him get um, the help that he needs. And that's what she did. That's what they did together. They sought help. He talked to his pastor. They met with a counselor. They went through marital counseling for a long time. And you know what? By God's grace, he found victory. He gained victory over that sin. Has been able to reach out and help others who are struggling with that sin. And their marriage, uh, she was telling us not long ago, their marriage is stronger than it has ever been. They have beautiful children. They're involved in the church. They're serving in the church. And I think, you know what, man? That was an evil day. That was a hideous thing. That's a terrible sin to be ensnared in. But the belt of truth, um, that was used. God even can use that, wicked things, evil things, to strengthen us, to fortify us. And I thought that was a really interesting, maybe illustration of that, what the belt of truth really looks like. Because that happens. Here's the last point. And I'm, I'm pretty much out of time. But the last point is this. Um, we must be prepared. We must be prepared. And again, this is armor that several times Paul tells us, doesn't he? Take it up. Take up this armor. Put on this armor. It's to be worn. You know, you, you, Paul is not giving you a ticket and some popcorn and, and some soda and a front row seat. You know, and to put on your pajamas and relax. Paul is telling you, look, here's the armor. Take it up. Understand what it does and put it on. A belt of truth, can you see that? That would be worn. I don't know how accurate this picture would be. I don't know if you would actually see the belt because it would be underneath It would be underneath all the other armor on the Roman soldier. And by the way, Paul wrote this letter. You know where Paul was when he wrote Ephesians? He was in prison. You know who he was chained to? A Roman soldier. I love how Paul took advantage of every situation. He's chained to a Roman soldier. That's his evil day. He had them all the time. You know what Paul did? He could One thing he did is he led some of those Roman soldiers to Christ because he tells the Philippians later, it's like, hey, Caesar's household greets you. If you're chained to a Roman soldier and you're the Apostle Paul, you're going to be preaching the gospel, right? But another thing he did, I believe, he began to look at this Roman soldier and say, wow, look at this. He has a shield. 
He has a breastplate. He has a helmet, sword, sandals. He's got this belt on. I think Paul said, you know what? This could really prove a helpful illustration for other Christians that need it. Because we're just as much engaged in warfare as this Roman soldier. And so a Roman soldier's belt would be um, what tucked in all the loose parts of his robe that he wore underneath everything. You would fold it, you would roll it up, and you would tuck it in. The Bible has a really archaic way of saying this. If you have an old King James Version, it would say this multiple times. Gird up your loins. Be ready for action. Right? That's the idea here. When you met a Roman soldier who had girded up his loins and had his belt on, you knew, get out of his way, man. He's going to war. This meant you're ready. You're prepared. This is the first thing. This, and you think, a belt? Really? A belt? I mean, what do you do? Like, take it, you know, and just like whip somebody and beat somebody with it? No, it's not that kind of armor. This is the, this is the armor. It would actually be a wide leather belt. And I've read that one of the uses for this, I'm just being honest, okay, was to cover the private parts of the soldier. This was like really close and personal to him, okay? There was a real commitment here to battle. He had to protect himself and his scabbard that held his sword, it would be cinched to this belt. His breastplate would be attached to this belt. And all of his loose flowing clothing would be tucked under this belt. This was a really important part of his armor. Before all the other exciting part of the armor that you put on, this had to be underneath. This is like truth in the inward parts. This is, are you committed to this battle? Do you understand the truth about who you are, who he is, what the battle is, and who, where the enemy is at? That's what this is really a picture of, I believe. And look, I know, I was talking to somebody at our home group, like there's so many different interpretations when you read people on this. Some say this is sincerity. This is the truthfulness of the soldier. I'm not buying that. Are you going to go with the enemy with your sincerity? <laughs> Seriously? We're going to talk about this, uh, not next week, Easter, but the next time we pick this up, the breastplate of righteousness, some people actually believe that that's your righteousness. It's going to quench the fiery darts of the enemy. Yeah, as John Calvin said, good luck with that, <laughs> right? Your righteousness, your truth, no. No, this is all God's armor, the armor of God. It's his stuff. He purchased this for you, and he's offering it to you freely. It's got nothing to do with what you're going to do or what you have done. This is You make use of it in the war, certainly. But I believe this, this belt, some people believe it's Scripture. Well, the sword of the Spirit comes later, and that's the Word of God. It tells us, right? Um, other people believe, is this Jesus? He's the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah, I believe Jesus is truth incarnate. He's truth personified, right? But I believe this is more of a, and I hate to use this word, but for lack of a better term, it's more of a subjective um, application and commitment to, to God's truth in the Bible, right? And it's reminding yourself of that truth. It's, it's, it's filling that truth in your secret parts, in your inward parts, and being committed to it. This is a battle, and I know this. You know, the Bible says, as Christians, we are to think. We are supposed to think. You know when Paul was suffering, and he, had, he was overtaken by an evil day? Do you know what he said? He said this in Romans. He said, for I reckon, he wasn't a Texan, he used that word for a reason. He said, I reckon that the, that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Do you remember that? Now, what's Paul doing there? That's a great illustration for us. He's putting on his belt of truth. Have you suffered? How many people in here have suffered? Just this week, just, just this morning. How many people have kids? <laughs> just getting our kids up and ready for church, I felt like there was war, you know? 
And what did Paul do? He thought. He, put, he fastened his belt on. He, he girded up the loins of his mind and he prepared himself. And he said, look, this is terrible. This is painful. This is awful. I feel abandoned. I feel betrayed. Demas forsook Paul, one of his partners on the mission field. He really agonized and struggled. But Paul was a thinking Christian, which is what we all should be. And he fastened on that belt of truth and he said, but I reckon this. I consider, when I look at all this suffering and the blip on the map that this present life is, it's not even worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed. That's fastening on the belt of truth. That's what Paul's doing. And that's what we're called to do, too. We must be prepared. Man, there was so much more that I wanted to say. How about one final quote? Richard Lovelace said this, The forces of darkness are so chained by the victory of Christ that they are unable to do anything which does ultimate damage to His glory and kingdom. The battles we fight against them should not be occasions of anxiety, They force us back to reliance on Christ's redemptive work and enhance our dignity and authority as redeemed saints who have the power to judge angels. Isn't that good? He's saying the same thing that Jesus said. When you worry, when you're anxious, what does God tell you to do? Stop. Stop. And remember, consider the lilies of the field. Aren't they beautiful the way they, you know, they don't toil, they don't spin, they're trusting their creator. And I'm not not throwing out like, oh, just... The cure for anxiety is, is just to look at the flowers. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there's this belt of truth that we put on that we remember who we are, who God is, and, and what this battle means in light of that. You know, and, and speaking of the armor and the battlefield, all of these things were purchased for us by Jesus Christ. There was a great Roman captain, and, and his name was Trajan. And he was one of the emperors of Rome. And they said not only was he a great leader, he was an incredible soldier on the battlefield. And he refused to be separated from his men. And when he was engaged in battle and one of his soldiers would be wounded, he would take off his armor and he would actually put it on the fallen wounded soldier. And he would take his clothing, his robe underneath his belt of truth, and he would rip it and shred it and bind up their wounds. That'd be an amazing guy. I'd want to fight in that guy's army, wouldn't you? But you know what? We have an even better commander than him. Because not only does Jesus Christ purchase all of this armor and give it to us, he tears his own body. You know, we're going to celebrate communion next week. He says, this is my body and it's been broken for you. It's been torn for you. This is my blood and it's been shed for you. Jesus is the commander that on the battlefield says, how about this? How about I trade places with you? And that way, you know, you're playing with house money. (laughs) The battles, the battle is intense. It's fierce, but the war is over. It's been won. The enemy has been defeated and you are the victors. And so enjoy the battle. The victory's yours. That's what this means. And that's what the belt of truth is. That truth, planting it firmly and deeply in your mind and heart um, and letting it just frame the way you think, having your perspective on the Christian life.